As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Mark Slater with us as usual. Our guest today is John Texter, who earlier this year invested almost £90 million in the English Premier League side Crystal Palace, and in doing so became a fourth partner and director at the club. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast, John. Before we get on to Palace and investing in football and all that comes with that, for everybody listening, just a little bit about your background, first of all. I don't have you know, an easily explainable background. I've had many different sort of periods in my life where I've been, you know, quite a different person. I I think I was very adventurous as a young person. Um, You know, I loved uh, sport of any sort, anything with a ball or anything with wheels. I enjoyed growing up as a skateboarder. Uh, Skateboarding ended up becoming a pretty big thing for me. I was signed by a professional team, which was one of the leading skateboard brands in the world at that time. I think I was lucky I had a severe head injury when I was young, skateboarding. Uh, and it, I, you can't be afraid when you're, you know, doing vertical uh, aerial uh, acrobatics and concrete pools. So I went from being very good at what I was doing to being very afraid to continue doing it. And uh, I told myself, I, I feel bad about this young man because I mentioned him a few times. I said, if Tony Samotis ever beats me in competition, I'm quitting. And that's exactly what happened, sort of two contests after my head injury. Uh, and true to uh, my word, I quit and I started taking school more seriously. I think that was really good for me. Uh, I was a, an early sort of programmer. That was probably the thing I, I cared about the most uh, in school. I did well in general classes, but I was involved in uh programming in many languages as technology was evolving. And that ended up being probably the most sort of important part of my youth that carried on into my adult life. Give it to you quickly. You know, I went to college in the Northeast. I graduated at a time where I think the investment banking and acquisition business was booming. They were hiring. I had a lot of student loan debt. Grew up with, uh, you know, very little money. And so I had a lot of borrowings. I was able to get recruited into a firm that helped me pay those off quickly. And so whether that was the right job for me or not to go into the merger and acquisition business, that was the job that 
showed up on campus and helped me pay off my debt. Uh, so from investment banking, I learned how to buy companies. I, I went off on my own only about three years after college, uh, got involved in the early uh, enabling technologies of the internet. Uh, one of the very lucky uh, moments was uh, meeting a company up in Boston that was uh, inventing personalization. You know, the way uh, websites would get to know you as an individual, you know, that seems a common you know, thing these days, an, an annoyance, really, cookies that sort of almost investigate you while you're using it. But back in those days, it was very useful because websites had to learn to talk to the individual uh, and recognize the relationship between a person and a company. And so I got involved in some of the early personalization technologies that helped uh, create websites for Microsoft, American Airlines, big companies. And so I knew what we were doing was pretty good. If companies like that, that were leading the technology kind of uh, revolution, were relying on us to build their websites. Uh, started an internet bank, maybe the third or fourth in the world. Big uh, you know, partners like Microsoft and others that backed us. That was a new thing, banking over the internet and doing it in a secure way. And uh, a bunch of fun stuff from there. Very schizophrenic, I think reflective of the way my brain works. I'm a non-linear thinker. You talked about being adventurous when you were younger. Do you think you have to have a sense of adventure to invest in a Premier League club now you're older? I mean, on a skateboard, you know, the bottom would fall out from under you and you would fall 13 feet to flat concrete. And somehow the thrill of what you could do while you were in control was intoxicating and the pain of failure was immediate and direct. The fact that the bottom can fall out from under you, and this is the topic of relegation that makes uh, football so special and so painful. Imagine the New York Jets, right? And the biggest city in the world, uh, just suddenly not being in American football at all. They would have gone away years ago. <laughs> they, would, they would be down with, you know, uh, Wrexham, right? And... Um, hoping that Ryan Reynolds comes along and buys. <laughs> I think that um, you have to have a, a really strong constitution to be an owner of football over the years. I think what Steve Parrish, you know, personally, you know, has gone through with his community. That's one of the ways I ultimately found out about Palace years ago. Sort of everybody saw that carnage and the recovery and the ascension and Every club has gone through that at some point. The concept of relegation appeals to you. Oh, God, yeah, because nothing is worth it unless it's earned. I don't want to turn this podcast into a whole rehashing of the digital domain story. Mm -hmm. That is something that obviously came up in Crystal Palace fans' due diligence of you. It was one of the first things yeah. they found when they went straight to Google and Wikipedia. Oh, what's this? Oh, no. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this. I know it's a complicated story, and I know that, I think in some ways this is part of you, isn't it? I mean, how you banged your head a few times, right? Well, I carry that around as much as anybody, uh, of course, along with the 344 people that I hired and trained into that studio that was shut down. And I have 23 businesses that I've invested in over the years. I started in the high risk, high return kind of technology startup world where I don't know how these uh, private equity guys and these funds are able to do it. You know, they invest in hundreds of companies and they hope that 20% of them work. And in the days of the kind of uh, explosion of the internet and valuations associated therewith, a 20%, 30% track record was great. Well, that means a 70 to 80% failure rate 
And that means companies that got shut down and people that lose their jobs. And still the same year that happens, that particular private equity fund reports a fabulous year. I wasn't set up as a fund. I didn't have any money when I started my venture capital business. I, I knew a great deal about technology as a, as a programmer, as a, a, a futurist. And so I raised capital with no reputation and I had uh, no ability or track record to say as a fund would, you know, give me a billion dollars and I'll spend it the way the fund sees fit and we'll have some winners, we'll have some losers and we'll average the return. Instead, what I did was I would find individual companies that were interesting to me, and then I would find investors that were interested to support those companies. And I had different investors in every single company, some that bought into only the winners, some that bought into those that didn't win. And because of that, I ended up seeing myself as like a captain of the ship that would have to go down with every failure, have to work as hard in failure to help those companies recover, because I just personally could not accept the concept of loss. Across our 23 or so technology investments, over 60% of them were successful, but that was painful for me because that meant I ended up getting involved. I, I, I transitioned from being an investor. I was never an investor. I didn't have money. I was, I was investing on behalf of my partners. I went from the investment perspective to the owner, operator, fixer, salvaging, the failures and digital domain, you know, for me at the end of that, I mean, I had this incredible track record in my, uh, you know, venture capital days. And we, we turned uh, one deal, you know, $2.4 million into $550 million. That was our technology group, uh, $5 million into $40 million in virtual bank. You know, there's sort of these great stories of how well we were doing, but then you'd have these, technology startups that oftentimes were ahead of their time. So sometimes the ideas are way before their time. In the case of digital domain, you know, I bought a company that was in pre-bankruptcy and I had all kinds of shareholders. And I think this was my biggest failure there, which has taught me so much going forward. It's about, you, you can't just have a good business. I mean, we were doing well as a business. We were ahead of our uh, projections. We were publicly traded. We had just come out with Tupac, the first believable digital human and a live performance. Our stock was cranking up, but we borrowed money from a hedge fund. And the hedge fund saw the incredible amount of assets we were building up because of public grants and community uh, collaboration. And this, I thought I had this incredible combination of a private business, capitalism as a force of good in a community where we were partnering with the public and we were partnering with communities. And it was mostly our private capital, but we also had public grants and we were creating jobs and training people. And I was trying to keep those jobs from moving offshore into lower cost environments in, in Asia and elsewhere. We borrowed money from the wrong guys. And so we had shareholders that loved the plan. We had employees that loved the plan. We had hedge funds that decided you know, we were better shut down. I'll tell anybody that looks at that story and says, well, what kind of guy is he? That company, Digital Domain, Look it up. Within a year after it was shut down for a $3 million uh, minimum cash covenant, it went public in Hong Kong for $3.5 billion. The business we built was fabulous. The growth, the technology, the you know changing the landscape of entertainment, all of those things were in place. But it was my responsibility to have everybody singing the same tune 
And it's the responsibility of the leader of every business. And I would say this to every company I'm involved in now, if your owners aren't aligned, if your debt has an agenda, well, that's certainly trouble. If you have debt at all, that should be frightening. There are so many lessons in there. There's so many little phrases that are make, making me think of football, you know, public, yeah. private, debt. There's just so many. I mean, if you had to sort of maybe pull a, one lesson from that whole experience that you could apply now to owning a football club, what would it be? You know, it's not enough to get out, make speeches, talk about vision, talk about community, you know, talk about everybody being on the same team. You know, everybody really has to be on the same team. Every stakeholder in the business, from the fan to the shareholder, to if you are relying in any way on debt, everybody has to be rooting for the same outcome. Everybody has to be rooting for a tie or better. Unfortunately, in this modern world of capitalism, sometimes stakeholders in your company are actually rooting for failure. And it happens in public companies. The whole concept of hedge fund, anytime somebody says, I run a hedge fund, well, be careful. That means they bet on the good result and they bet on the bad result. The simple lesson from all that, if you're the leader of that company, as I was, I, I could talk all I want about how great of a job I was doing building business, but it was my responsibility to make sure everybody was on the same team. And I didn't do that. And that's how a great company can be torn down. So when you look at a football club, every one of them starts out as a great company because they're born out of the community. They have you know, 100 years or more of history. You have a certain amount of success just by not screwing it up. So debt, I think, is the first lesson. If you don't want to lose a great company, whether it's a great company or a great football club and a great community, don't borrow money. If you have debt, have a strategy to pay it off. If your business model in football, which frankly right now is quite traditional and quite constrained, television, tickets, and merchandise, if it's limited in your capacity to compete, to sign players, to win games, to serve, you know, we know what the fans want. They want to win. They want to have fun. They want an entertaining brand of football. If you can't do that off of the, the revenues that are sort of core to your business, well, then do something about it. But don't borrow because borrowing money is the only way you can lose a high quality business and see it torn down right in front of you, as I did, the 344 people that we lost. Uh, we had many, many more employees that went on to do great things at Digital Domain, but the, the, the failure of that company was the Florida studio. And if you don't want to see families and communities torn apart and feel the impact of abject failure, don't borrow money. And if you borrowed money, have a plan to pay it off. That's I'd say the lesson for all football clubs, and I'd say across Europe, that lesson's not followed in other parts of the world. You know, fans actually vote for leadership. Um, so when people talk about fan ownership or fan control, fans are fabulous. But in certain parts of the world, Portugal and Spain, the incentives are built in such a way to win at all costs, even if it means you borrow your club into oblivion. So, you know, some of these things, I mean, just finding balance among it all is the greatest challenge in football. You know, what the fans want, what the shareholders want, what the community wants, what history wants, you know, sustainability. And those are often competing objectives. You talked about all, all partners, all owners in a business being aligned. Are, are the four of you at Palace aligned? And the, second, and the second part of that is, isn't it sometimes important that actually you're not always aligned and you challenge each other? Yeah. I, well, I've only been part of the group. Uh, for a short time, but I can tell you 
the the way Crystal Palace is set up, if there was a, a time of disagreement, and I haven't seen it in my short history with the club, the governance is really set up to force unanimous support of every major decision, bringing in equity capital, uh, bringing in debt capital, signing players. There have been questions about, you know, my ownership uh, level or the ownership of others, which, you know, we don't disclose our individual holdings. But what I can say is that the four of us vote equally. And that was set up before I showed up. And I had, you know, maybe an option to buy a club where you could have more control or maybe, you know, ask uh, for a structure within Palace uh, where I could have had more control, but they didn't want that. I chose not to do that. I was very happy to join a partnership of uh, three terrific people that now, you know, with myself as the fourth, we vote equally. There's a lot of uh, talk about American owners, these American owners, uh, American billionaires. These are expressions that by their very nature just come with bias, come with history, come with you know, observations over a lifetime of, you know, what is an American businessman or, you know, what's capitalism or what's the relationship between one country and another. So it's a pretty foggy prism if you load it up with all of that sort of preconception of what an individual might be like just because they're financially successful. In our case, I can only speak to our American owners. Any suggestion that they're not really engaged uh, could not be farther from the truth. I don't know how other clubs do it. Every Friday at 11 o'clock, rain or shine, regardless of what parts of the world we're in, the owners get together and talk about everything. And Steve Parrish is incredible in the way he invites opinions and contribution on everything from the top to the bottom of the business. And he's very good about making it fun because we want to talk about the game and we want to hear what Patrick might be thinking. And we want to talk a bit about the players but we also know that our strengths are in other areas. And so we leave a lot of time on these phone calls to bring whatever our business experience might be to, to contribute. And in the case of Josh and David, oh my God, right? Like what sort of history they have in investing across industries and countries and businesses. And I could just tell, I want the Crystal Palace fans to know that these guys love this team. They're incredibly engaged. Every single week, they don't miss it. We're aligned. I guess it's easier to be aligned when you're doing well. I haven't seen us, you know, go through a trouble spot. Uh, but I can tell you, these guys are good critical thinkers, and they deal with success and failure all the time in their portfolios, and they deal with it with a, a, a steady hand. So I think it's pretty cool. It's great for me just to watch these guys in action at times. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. 
dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It sounds like I, mean, I don't put words into your mouth, but there's a there's a slight sense of annoyance that you would all get all American investors in in British football clubs get lumped together. Look, when the Super League happens, and which was not entirely an American phenomenon, but yeah, those are the times where you really want to remind people that it's you know incredibly inappropriate to judge people by reasons of their where they come from or look i don't even know the american billionaires that came up with these crazy ideas in the super league and i think it's it was appalling it was selfish it was so obviously the wrong thing to do we have an expression that we use a lot hey read the room this is you know english football was built on the backs of all of these communities in this structure and this dream that the the little guy can actually beat the big guy, uh, and we've seen it happen in modern times with Leicester and and many other examples. Uh, we just rolled up to Manchester City. I'd like to announce this again and took on a giant and got out of there with a win. And uh, that happens in English football. And you know what what the Super League was trying to do is you know I think really really uh, it was a strike against that history, but. Uh, to say it's an American uh, business thing, I frankly think that lessons of American capitalism, if, if they can be manifested, you know, through benevolent owners that really want to use the tools of capitalism to help communities, that's what I've always tried to do. That's what I was trying to do with digital domain is the community sort of, uh, you know, company collaboration. And that's ultimately why I chose South London to be involved in. Um, so I think some American owners uh, come over with good intent. Uh, some owners, whether they're American, Russian, or from the Middle East or Asia, uh, have great intent. Uh, others view teams as trophies and the final accomplishment of a career of conquest. But, you know, these are all different people. John, I completely agree that there are, there are good and bad owners. It doesn't matter where they come from. There's, there's plenty of good American owners. There's plenty of bad British owners. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I completely agree with you on that. I think Crystal Palace fans will be absolutely fascinated to hear that you guys get together at 11, it's 11 o'clock in the morning, I assume, right? Yeah. Well, it's not in a specific place, so nobody can crack. <laughs> it's a Zoom call. We really enjoy Steve Parrish as a true football chairman. And we do have a terrific uh, management team along with him and Phil, the CEO, of course, and Dougie, sporting director. But, but Steve, as you know, you must know, is a very strong, engaged, involved chairman. Uh, he is, rather than just generalities, you know, he's a critical thinker. Like he really, you know, when you talk to him about things, whether it's football or life, it's amazing how much he's thought about things before he speaks. And he does speak a lot, 
which means he thinks a lot. Like, so he's a really good thinker. And I think we all sort of trust the way he views things. And he does have a, a decent amount of humility and uh, likes to question his own decisions. He likes to use us as a sounding board. And ultimately, you know, he, he makes so many of the calls on his own and we back him. There is no, other than meeting Patrick and enjoying him, and I've had the pleasure of meeting him and asking him about football, uh, Patrick does not come to the owners and, you know, uh, need to sort of sell his ideas. Or I mean, that's not a linkage that sort of happens at our club. It's all really through these ownership calls. Steve gives us great access to anybody we want to talk to. We just choose to be fans when we're around the club. Uh, that's the fun of owning a football club. The ownership calls... You know, they're, uh, you know, fabulous. I mean, it's everything from, you know, I've maybe I've talked to you about this a bit before, Matt, in terms of my history in football. I'm very youth focused, very academy focused. I have been to the academy side of Crystal Palace well over a dozen times already. I've been to the first team ground only twice, maybe, and they're right next to each other. So my interest just in terms of the things I want to watch and see. I mean, I love the buildup from the U9s to the U16s, the U18s, and then our really terrific uh, U23 and our women's team. Women's football is a huge thing in the U.S. And so I'd like to sort of bring some ideas to strengthen that through greater connectivity. As an owner that sends ideas into Steve and Steve says, John, you know, we've tried it, we've tried it, we've tried it. So there's, there's a whole lot of, you know, things that somebody like me would show up and say, well, this is a good idea. And, uh, you know, it's been done, it's been tried. And, and Steve's very good at picking and choosing kind of the wisdom or the naivete of his ownership group, sifting through it and sort of making good decisions. And that happens every Friday. Just a couple of recent ones. So I'm just wondering, like, in terms of the feedback and things he shares with you, you know, did he, for example talk to you about Gary Hoffman and, and what the club's position on Gary Hoffman, the, the Premier League chairman was. Did he, has he, has he reported back on US Premier League TV rights? Has he asked you guys what you think? On television? Yeah, of course. I've shared with him a lot about television and specifically television and technology and what the user experience needs to be. But I also had some separation from that because I'm a former the major, the largest shareholder of Fubo TV, which was a soccer streaming company before it became a, a more diverse sports and entertainment uh, company. And Fubo was bidding, may still be bidding in different parts of the world, you know, obviously not in the US. Other than sort of sharing with him, as I did many times, what television needs to look like in the future. Uh, and if we're going to go with what one of, I, I call them the dinosaurs of sort of content delivery, uh, that we at the Premier League have to challenge them to step up their game in user interface, 4K streaming in multi-panel picture-in-picture, like kind of on steroids, which some of the OTT technology platforms are doing. And also that, and I think they're doing a really good job of this, NBC Universal, making all of the games available. I think they're doing a better job now at making sure we see the the, the terrific games, whereas early on, it bothered me that I guess it was last year, the year before Manchester City, Liverpool. I woke up on a Saturday morning and it wasn't on TV. It was on the Peacock streaming network, which they were trying to sort of build interest in. And I could not have been more offended by that as a consumer and more surprised at how bad that was for the Premier League when we're trying to build a passion in people to understand what it's like to go to that game, to hear 
them sing. You'll never walk alone. Like this is English football. And to have that segmented off for somebody's streaming platform promotion, these kinds of things I think have been worked out. I think NBC Universal is great. I think Rebecca Lowe, I'm just say as an American, I don't know her, massive fan. Like she's doing as much for uh, English football here as anybody I've seen since. Oh, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rank that against a great player, but it's um, David Beckham. Uh, go on, since it's <laughs> Pele, you're gonna say Pele, weren't you? No, I was gonna say Beckham, and I said oh, okay. it. And um, yeah, so he shares a lot about that, but I, you know, I, I'm still a very small shareholder of Fubo, and uh, he. Steve was on the broadcast committee. And so, no, I didn't know really what happened in the final rounds on, you know, Gary Hoffman. Well, you know, that all happened so fast. Honestly, all I ever heard from Steve is personal stuff, which is very positive about Gary. And I, I think it's always bad when one person ends up kind of, you know, shouldering the burden of a much more complicated situation. And uh, I don't know Gary, but obviously he's been great for the Premier League. The Premier League has been cruising along in a very good way for a, a good number of years. Uh, I think the recent television uh, deal in the United States, people in the UK should really understand what that means. I mean, to have more than a double in the TV contract and the biggest untapped market for football audiences and even talent, uh, that's a really big deal. And it's going to strengthen the Premier League for many years to come. So whatever happens, in the future of Gary Hoffman, you know, that all happened on his watch. Some very, very good things over the years. Do the Premier League clubs have the right amount of power over the governance of the Premier League itself? I mean, you made a, a couple of references to NFL teams earlier. I know NFL teams put Roger Goodell in place, don't they, the commissioner? But then the commissioner can kind of tell them what to do over the course of his reign if he needs to. So... Well, he's a very, very strong commissioner. I had uh, five very good chances to meet him, corner him, and talk to him because my uh, son, Addison, is a huge Palace fan, uh, goes to a school in New Hampshire with Goodell's uh, uh, daughter. And so I found myself buying a hot dog next to Roger repeatedly through that <laughs> game because I love hot dogs more than most food groups. And... <laughs> But I didn't even bring myself to make an introduction. I wanted to, you know, I mean, imagine what's in his head. I mean, it's, he's a very strong model of a commissioner. Uh, in baseball, it was interesting, not so long ago, Bud Selig was not only commissioner, but he was a team owner. You know, so to see how league leadership has changed over the year, where it literally used to be an owner who was maybe the chosen among the owners as the best guy to sort of take the job and the conflicts of owning a team and managing a league to see how that's evolved, where there's much more separation between the league and owners over time, I don't know. You know, if the, if, is that a good thing? Every sport is a little different. You know, I'm learning all that at the Premier League. Like, uh, you know, Steve's invited me to be a part of the Premier League meetings. I haven't attended any. I, I don't. There's no feeling in our ownership group that Steve needs any. Any Steve does not need any help. I can tell you that. <laughs> So he handles that stuff, and I just don't have a lot of visibility of it. A fresh pair of eyes might, to use your phrase, read the room differently. Yeah, although that room is full of personalities, and often the, the, the issues are sort of clear outside the room. You know, what I can contribute to is, you know, I, I believe I have great vision of sort of the digital distribution of, of content from the technology side. I think I have a great history in storytelling, you know, the, the soul of content that we're distributing. I think I have a pretty good sense for how 
the world's going to look judging the technology we have today, changing practices and content consumption and, and how that's going to look five years from now. I think the traditional television, you know, is dying a very quick death. You know, when was the last time your 17 year old walked in the room and said, hey, can I show you a clip of, uh, you know, Modern Family or Seinfeld or they digest and consume content in little pieces. We have to adapt to that, which is why these sort of dinosaurs of content delivery, you know, need to need to grow up pretty quickly. Let me ask you finally, from my point of view, what your vision is for Palace and whether that vision is more off-field than on-field or actually whether the two are linked? My vision for Palace is all about supporting what can ultimately happen on-field. Our owners want to see this club be very successful. Uh, we want to move up the table. We know we have significant disadvantages under the rules of financial fair play. And, you know, even with some of the measures that are being taken to make sure that, you know, those rules are followed more closely, related party transactions being a, a recent topic, it's still a tough thing to catch up if what you can spend on a team is based on your revenues and other sort of financial metrics when you're within your already massive organization, it's very difficult to catch up. So uh, the only way you can really catch up is, and you can't just spend an incredible amount of money and lose and lose and lose money until you build your roster, because even that's against the rules, you know, thank goodness, right? But what you can do is expand uh, your revenues into new areas. I think that what every club should realize is that the audience that they rep represent is always more valuable than the team. So the team, its value is driven by its television contract revenues, its merchandise sales, and its ticket sales. And even if you look at the public numbers of Manchester United, they're relatively flat in their growth. There's not a lot going on. It's just a football club. But Manchester United, I would say, you know, it's a classic underachiever as a corporation and as a public company because it is the greatest representation, along with Liverpool and Chelsea and these other clubs, of an incredible connection with community, the community around the stadium, the community around the world, the millions and millions of people that don't just root for the team. They hang on every last thing that's happening to the team. And they're thinking about, you know, their red devils between games while they're at work talking to friends. So when you think about how technology and social media and applications are able to engage with people, not, engage with them in their experience with the team Manchester United, but what are they doing in life? How are they buying makeup? What are they driving as a car? Like helping them, connecting with them. Like there is so much more in revenue potential for those clubs uh, to get even closer to their community. And that's how you have to expand revenues if you're one of the little guys and catch up. So Crystal Palace, I didn't choose the colors, but I can tell you there are a whole lot of American fans that love the fact that they play in red, white, and blue, and they have an eagle on their chest, right? So <laughs> if I can use that to create more interest and more revenues, um, reaching out, international expansion, uh, academy systems, uh, paper play, play systems in other parts of the world, um, revenues through technology and social media and fan engagement around the world, like... That's how you have to catch up. Sorry to be so esoteric about that. Your, your question is quite specific. I, like everybody, I, I'm a fan. I want to see this team win. I think that we have a very engaged group of owners. I think that, you know, we're very committed to helping Steve keep many of the promises that he made even before I arrived. The stadium is going to happen. Uh, we have the ability to finance it. I think you guys all know 
you know, some of the details that he has to work through to make it happen. So I hope that I might have brought some new energy to that, but nobody needed to encourage Steve. I mean, he has been, he's incredibly committed to make that happen. It's a promise he made to the fans and that, that guy delivers on his promises. In terms of the roster, I think there's some things that I would love to see change over time in English football. And I'll give you one of them. You know, I don't want to see more international players on rosters. I like the balance now. I love the English game. I think the English players need to be protected. I think there's a soul to this game in England that's really important. But if you're going to have an American player on your roster at the Premier League, the best league in the world, he better be the best American. Uh, and the best Americans cannot get through the system, through the GB visa point system. You have to have 15 points to get into uh, England. Well, you get points if you play in a good league and a good country and a good team and you get in some of these continental competitions. Well, you have one of the largest resources of talent in the world sitting in the United States, the people that are growing up. They came from South America. They were born in the United States. They might have come from Europe and they want to play and they can play and they cannot get there because the MLS only gives you four points. There is no you know, continental competition that gives you any more points. The only way you as an American player get onto an English football club is if one guy who, you know, happens to be a former Crystal Palace player, <laughs> if one guy says you're good enough to play on the U.S. national team, then you get an auto pass. Well, when was the last time anybody was really excited about the quality of play of the U.S. national team? So I think the Liverpool sporting director is the best judge of expert talent when going around the world for the Liverpool team. Uh, I think that the same could be said of Dougie Friedman. He knows better who's right for Palace than Burhalter. So the system is really built in such a way that you have to earn those points in those other markets before you're allowed into the UK. So what is that force? Some This is something I didn't come up with. I learned through a great friend in, in, in English football. This is what has created a system where the outflow of capital from the country of England, from the teams in England, we're having to pay money in a huge, you know, huge amounts to other countries, other clubs, other cultures. So there's a bloodletting of UK football that happens every day because of the rules of UK football, uh, because we have to buy players that qualify to get into the system. And the best way for the little club to compete with the big club is hiring a smart guy that's better at assessing talent and he can find it anywhere in the world. And if that means, you know, Norman, Oklahoma or Paducah, Kentucky or Buenos Aires, well, that's how the small team should be able to compete with the big teams. And that's how the quality of English football will get better for that international component that does arrive. Could that, that talent also be in Lisbon, Portugal? Well, as it turns out, uh, they, um, yeah, so obviously uh, Brazil has been an incredible source of talent. France, incredible source of talent. Belgium, a great system of talent. Portugal, um, incredible. Four starters on the Manchester City roster that come from the Benfica Academy. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for Benfica, um, they have a very small kind of uh, economy. Uh, they're not really open in a lot of ways to economies around the world. Um, they have a massive brand, Benfica, Sporting, FC Porto, but they have no television contract. It, you know, it pales in comparison to what we have in the UK. So, you know, every year they have to sell their talents all over Europe to sort of make ends meet and balancing that uh, with their own desires for competitiveness and what the fans want is very difficult 
And it's it's very difficult when Benfica has to go into UEFA and they might run into a Manchester City and it's Benfica players that send them home from the Manchester City roster. So I think the Benfica Academy, uh, it's been voted the top academy in Europe many times in recent years. I think it's probably the top academy every year in terms of its uh, reliability uh, to uh, locate uh help to migrate from Brazil and elsewhere in the world through Portugal into Europe and from Portugal into Europe. Might it be teaming up with Crystal Palace's Academy in the near future? Well, you know, I did that on my own, right? And, uh, you know, everybody at Crystal Palace is aware that I had an interest in Portugal. My favorite team is Crystal Palace. I'm never going to be a majority owner at Benfica. That's owned by the people. It really is. It's an amazing thing. It's true public ownership. So my opportunity is to be a minority owner there and to convince them that collaboration uh, with a team in England uh, would be good for them. If you put a player from a Portugal academy uh, who's played his way through the first team onto a mid-table club in the UK, if that player earns time, that player goes from being worth, you know, a couple million euros to 30, 40 million euros. So when Benfica doesn't collaborate, uh, doesn't have access to that kind of relationship, they'll sell Bernardo Silva to Monaco, I think, for a small amount of money. And ultimately it's Monaco that trades them to Manchester City. So, you know, these relationships have to be a two-way street. No one club should be a feeder for another. You know, the idea that Crystal Palace, which has incredible access to South London talent, uh, it's going to have a hard time now that we're a Category 1 academy keeping all that talent happy. Uh, we're going to have to work harder as a club to get them playing time in different parts of the world, quality playing time where they can compete at a high level and hopefully come back to us in great shape to start on our first team. Uh, at the same time, you know, clubs like Benfica need to do the same thing. If they do collaborate with us or a number of other clubs, Maybe they sell fewer players because when they do sell players, they get more for them. John, thank you very much for being our guest on the, on this podcast. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you John. Great. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's great to see you uh, in, in person, and it's, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you, John. Take, Take care. care. Bye. See you soon. Thank you. Cheers, John. That's it. Thanks to John for joining us. Don't forget to celebrate Black Friday. You can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of just £1 a month for a full 12 months. The offer runs until midnight on Sunday, November the 28th. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.